What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, it's been a while since we talked about our old mate, Jason Furman. Uh, has he paid his bills? He has paid his bills. Oh, okay. So we should record him a new ad. Surely he has a website now? Uh, no, he does not. Oh, uh, maybe he's provided a direct phone number people can order through? Uh, I'll just check. Nope, no phone number either. I like the way that you're actually pretending to look whether he has provided <laughs> <laughs> So if you want to get in contact with Jason, you still have to do that through Facebook. It's uh, Einswick Dog Quip, E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K. Jason can hook you up with all the things you might be interested in getting, the Firepore Mills, which a lot of people are getting and loving. Mm. He has Herm Springer products, if you're into those. Yep. He has balls, leashes, tugs. Yep. And at the moment, he has a 10% discount on all Canine USA products. That's pretty cool. And I believe he's got a lot of the other stuff that you can use to compete in GRC as well, such as the sleds and the mm -hmm. spring poles. Yeah, that's correct. He yeah. sure does. Well, that's so great. That's a sport that, taking the world by storm. Yeah. So if you're into that or you just like training your dog, having a good time, have a chat to Jason on Facebook at Einswick Dog Quip. Yep. Send him an inventory via Messenger and get your gear. <laughs> <laughs> get a website, Jason, you bozo. Yeah. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. My name's Glenn Cook, and joined in his own studio is my regular co-host, Pat Stewart. Hello. Now that the cat's out of the bag, I thought we might as well tell people that you are in your own home and I'm in my own home. Yeah, that's right. We tried to pull the wool over people's eyes and we failed miserably. <laughs> well, I don't think too many people mentioned it until we actually brought it up as part of a prize giveaway where they won a dog hand grenade. Yeah. Which is not a um, live hand grenade, by the way. I just thought I'd better, in, just in case we've got a snowflake listening to the group and they thought, what are those two <laughs> buffets doing giving hand grenades to dogs? How irresponsible. Uh, but Sonia picked it in like a minute. So I reckon a lot of people probably realised that yeah, people look, there sort of is, said, oh, the sound was a bit off. There is a little bit of a variation in sound, but it's not too bad. Like I, yeah. as I said to you when I heard you with old mate, what's his name? Nick Bender. Yeah, Nick. with Nick, yes. So when I was listening to that, the sound quality was actually quite good. And I thought, well, that's actually very good. So for people who do interviews, depends on the mic situation that you've got. I mean, if you've got tinny old shitty gear at home or just, you know, like Apple headphone things, I'm not bagging Apple, don't get me wrong. I don't want a letter of cease and desist by them, of course. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if you've got good gear and it's a decent connection with your Skype connection, you can get good sound out of it, which... Yeah. Well, we thought we'd get away with it because I'm using the exact same microphone that I use in the studio there. But and yes, it's just that connection, right? It doesn't come through as, as clear. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It still does the job and we get through, get through the interview quite well, I believe, anyway. I'm the so, fussy one about sound, so I should know. Yeah, you are the fussy one. Mm. Yeah. 
hey, so we're going to keep working through that list because we haven't organized, been able to organize a guest. We, we've both got our – well, I've got my ass hanging out with the, the silver Nipopo school. So there's no time to get out there with you. And then, therefore, we didn't have any time to organize a, an interview or a guest because we didn't even know when we we're going to podcast. So we're, we're fitting one in. So we're going to keep working down the list of topics that people gave us. Yeah, like, you're right. Look, at the moment, it's for both of us, it's inconvenient time. I, went, I wasn't home all day today. I won't be home tomorrow. So, you know, it's, um, well, I'm not on site at Dural. I'm out doing other things. We've got crazy mm-hmm. business going on at the moment. So, which is good. But uh, yeah, it's just, swallowing up a whole lot of my time that I thought I had. So it's very convenient that we can get together in the evenings and do this at, mm-hmm. uh, at distance and still get quality out of it. Yay. Yay. So uh, <laughs> Sian Marie Pepper mm. has written here that she wants us to talk about living with a reactive dog and misconceptions of reactive dogs. And then Daniel Caruso, who's almost the karate kid, says, oh, you beat me to it. Yeah, since I'm working with my guy through it, I've been so interested and invested into learning this behavior. Would love to know what the thoughts are or make it a Patreon. Or oh, we could have done that. And then Well, we kind of did yes. really because in the aggression episode I did, we talked about reactivity in dogs. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, this is a single topic and it's it's a popular one because there's a lot of people who live with reactive dogs and children. Yeah. So how do you define that? What do you what do you think of when you say reactive dog? What are you thinking of? It's aggression. It's fear aggression. Yeah. Yeah. That's that yeah. summarizes it. I know that that funnels it into a one stop shop sort of approach to it. And it may not be that simple. But generally speaking, when I go out and see a customer or a client and they've got an issue with a dog and when you go around there to assess the issue, I would say 99 times out of 100, it's a fear-related aggression. And that's mm. where the reactivity is coming from. And generally, again, it's uh, it's poor socialization. That's my summary when I'm even speaking to them over the phone. Like as we start to do the interview and we start to undress and unpack the situation, we start summarizing when did they get the dog, what did they do with the dog, what was advised to them, how much training have they received. And the list goes on. There's a, there's a myriad of things that must be asked to summarize what is their assessment of the issue what do they know about it and when did it start how frequent is it what's the intensity level like there's a number of things that should and must be asked i guess mm. i certainly think of fear but i don't always think of aggression when people say reactivity because usually when it's aggressive when it's aggression people usually say that yeah and I, I certainly have encountered a lot of what i would call like fearful reactive dogs but i find that people often use that when it's not aggression that's being displayed because then yeah. people go oh he's aggressive but when it's like just general fearful flee maybe even shut down but nervous displacement type behavior yep which is you know usually fear-based uh well almost always fear-based people tend to refer to as reactive that mm. uh, I, that's what you know i hear a fair bit but how many of those dogs do you see as you were pointing out before like i've gone around to clients homes and they've said to me look i've got a very aggressive dog like i go down to my dog park dog park and, uh, <laughs> and you know, like my dog gets so reactive when it sees dogs. So the question I ask them, I think is a question that most people should ask them, has your dog been engaged in any violent activity with another dog before, i.e. has it mm-hmm. bitten another dog? Has it gone to bite another dog? And you generally find out that a lot of these dogs are reactive, but they haven't actually engaged in any violent type of behavior before. Yeah. So on closer inspection, when I've gone down there with them and they've They've not trusted themselves to handle the dog around other dogs, but I've handled the dog for them. And we've met, you know, a dog that's physically in the same sort of ballpark 
that that dog is, and the dog has a very calm demeanor and characteristic. And you've also got a willing participant who's accepting of having that dog being brought over to them or your own dog. So in some cases, you might have a suitable dog, a suitable pet dog of your own that you would take along to that sort of consult. But I've been to situations before where we have met up with somebody and I've said, look, I won't get your dog involved in the situation. I need you to handle. So we have a like a good 15 minute conversation around it, how it's going to look and how we're going to plan it out. And that dog certainly is reactive, don't get me wrong. So the dog does react. It's charging at the other dog, it's barking. But when it actually gets over to the other dog, something transpires that has everybody befuddled is the dog is not aggressive. It's just Mm. frustrated because it wants to get to the other dog, but the frustration is creating this panicked behavior, which is misconstrued as aggression. And it's not. It's not aggression. It's full frustration that the dog is not allowed to make contact with the other dog. Therefore, it's, it's a social issue that's been induced by somebody who's who's overreacted and panicked and don't get me wrong i don't want to say to people when you see that just throw caution to the wind and run your dog over and see how it fares because it very well might be aggression where Mm. the dog is calling upon the other dog to say come over here and i'll smash you we don't want to lead anybody into that sort of situation at all but i guess on inspection with diligent people good handlers and good management a good system in place where all parties are aware of what could happen and how to quickly get themselves out of it if it does turn into something negative, I've generally found that it doesn't. It doesn't turn into yeah. that negative situation. You know, exactly what you're talking about, I see this heaps in my area and it is, it's almost, not not exclusively, but I see a lot of it in the bracky breeds. And so these are people who have bought, say, let's say a French bulldog and when it's a little puppy, they take it to all the all the places. They go to puppy school where it's like free range playing with dogs. He's got his little dog friends down at the park or whatever. He's almost like a free range dog and he develops a, a lot of um, reinforcement playing with other dogs and really enjoys it. Mm. Then as he grows up a little bit or they're walking around and they these people tend never to have those dogs on collars. They have them on harnesses because they get told bracky brachyophilia or brachycephalia, you don't put him on a harness, don't put him on a collar, you risk damaging the airway. So the dog's wearing like a no-pull harness, so a constricting type harness. He sees other dogs, he wants to pull towards them. That reinforcement against his body, that squeezing against his body feels reinforcing and he feels like pulling and lunging towards another dog is what I should do. I'm being reinforced for trying to get to the other dogs that I, I want to get to as well. And then exactly as you say, that that bark comes out, that frustration just like I want to get over there. And then at that time, those people tend to give a jerk on the leash, trying to like, you know, sort of give a leash correction or a leash pop to stop that barking. But because the dog's in a no-pull harness, they actually then reinforce reinforce further that the dog likes that stimulus. And then the dog gets the idea, oh, I'm on the right track by barking at this other dog. You like it. I like it. Um, it's generally reinforcing and that just spools up and spools up and you can end up with what appears, what gives the, the picture of quite a dog aggressive dog that every time it sees another dog, it lights up at the end of the line and starts barking and carrying on. And nine times out of 10, exactly as you say, if and when they actually do get to that other dog, they just get there and want to play with it. It's not, there's no aggression in it whatsoever. Well, I guess technically by the true definition that there might be, but it's not aggression towards the other dog. It's aggression through the frustration of the yep. restraint. Um, well, so it's, it's perceived not, it, aggression. It's not, it's not actually an intent of aggression by the other dog. It's just purely frustration. It's just, let me at him. I want to get over there. I want to get over yeah. to that position. So it's a total, the total concept is perceived. Like our concept 
or our way of looking at it is if it quacks like a duck, walks like a duck, it's got to be a duck. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. by the way, let me say, how dare you, sir, go on to talk about how pressure could be perceived as reinforcing in behaviour. <laughs> Absolutely disgusting. <laughs> Oh, how dare I? How dare you? It's absolutely, I'm, I'm beside myself here. I'm just, just, I needed to drink a glass of water while you were having that conversation with me. I nearly passed out. <laughs> so here's a, here's a funny one. Yeah, go on. Have you seen Stephen Crowder does those um, change my change mind? Change my mind. I love things. them. So Jeff, I won't say his last name in case he doesn't want me to talk about it on the, on the podcast, but he says he wants to set up a booth that says, Negative reinforcement is the only type of reinforcement. Changed my mind. Yep. And his argument is that you're relieving the pressure of something. No matter in your pursuit of the positive reinforcer is only inevitably tied to the relief of some negative reinforcer, whether that's hunger, stress of desire or whatever, you're relieving something. Um, and after listening to that other podcast, he wanted to do that. <laughs> well, I hate to say it, but anybody who's got a dog that pulls on lead is using negative reinforcement whether they like it or not. Yeah, yeah. Or the dog's almost using it on them. Well, the dog's using um, it on them. So, I mean, and they'll say, well, that wasn't the intent. Well, it wasn't the intent, but, I mean, it still happened regardless. I mean, the dog's yeah, pulling on lead to get to a location. When it gets to the location, the pressure relieves and the dog gets reinforced. Boom. Yeah. Sounds like perfect Nipopo to me. It does to me too. Anyway, so, yeah, I think reactivity, Sian says, talk about reactive dogs and mm. misconception of reactive dogs but i think that part of that well that is a misconception you, that is a misconception yeah. what we we're talking about before where people aren't aware that the dog all it wants to do is socialize with the other dog but i mean i generally and i don't want to make this a breeders thing because i'm around them a lot i see a lot of german shepherds do it and they're very mm -hmm. vocal dogs i mean shepherds whinge and howl and and scratch at the floor and bark and they carry on like pork chops and there's no wonder that people do perceive it as aggression. And that's why I said mm. it's perceived aggression is they look at it and they think, wow, that look at that behavior out of the dog. I, I hate to see what would happen if it got over there to the other dog. Yeah. And yet, like I said before, and I know you've done this and many other trainers I've spoken to, they've walked over there confidently, calm, assertive handling. They've taken the dog over in the location of the other dog, allowed the dogs to sniff. And then suddenly you get this play bail behavior where the dog that was had the perception of aggression is actually trying to initiate play because mm. it's a new, it's a new, completely new scenario to the dog. It's never been allowed to do it before because of the perception. But when it is allowed to happen, it's thinking, wow, this is fantastic. I'm here. Yeah. I mean, naturally. The German Shepherd one, yeah, the German on. Shepherd one's a bit funny because th that's certainly been the case of dogs where I have then seen it is, well, even if it starts out the same picture where it is just a frustration to get there, a lot of the times some breeds then will you know, continue to display their frustration by biting. And yep. and same deal. It may not even be that there's a problem with the other dog. It, it's not fear-based. It's not dominance-based. There's nothing it's a boil over like effect. that. Yeah, it's just that I'm coming in hot and, mm. and whatever's in my way is getting bitten just because their mindset is going to relieve their stress that they're feeling at the time. That's right. Yeah, it's a boil yeah. over effect where it's there's so much tension there. And it's almost like somebody who gets, you know, like they get so angry, they then turn around and smash a wall. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. Because they just they they think that I've got to do something to get rid of this pent up energy, you know, like there's so much energy surging through me, I have to relieve the frustration because it's so intense at this point in time. So, you know, some some people grab yeah. a pillow and scream into it, some people turn around and hit a wall, some people get into fights, they might punch another person. Um and all of that isn't, you know, there it's an act of rage at the time where there's so much energy there, and they might after straight after doing it, they might think, "Oh shit, 
you know, that was terrible. What did I do that for? And, and immediately feel regret for their action. However, mm. they still went ahead through, they still went through the behavior. And generally mm. you find that's the amygdala part of the brain. I don't know. You'll have to ask Dr. Bob. Bobby. Dr. Bobby uh, Sapolsky. Bobby Sapolsky, our <laughs> mate, our close personal friend. But yeah. so I feel like when we're answering people's questions, it's always good to define the terms that they're using. And so reactive dogs is, is a tricky one because, yeah. you know, I would say there isn't a clear picture of what some people are say is a reactive dog might have a totally different picture in other people's mind as to what is a reactive dog. And so I think that really we talk about a dog that is acting on a stimulus, like reacting in a way that we don't like. Yep. I think that that's probably the best way to to cover the broad spectrum that's the of, transcribe type of things of it. people yeah, might for sure. see. Yeah. And then misconceptions of is I think that we've, we've talked about just then is that I think a lot of people – um, misunderstand why a dog is reacting to a stimulus in a particular way. As we said at the start, I think that fear is often a big motivator in that, but frustration can be another one. Mm. Uh, I think living, you know, we talk about living with a reactive dog and it is a fucking headache. I've done it. It's a, you're on guard all the time. That's the issue. Yeah, exactly. And I think that if, if that reactivity is grounded in fear in any way, shape or form, the best thing to do is just increase the the braveness of that dog. And there's so many exercises we've talked about a million times in, in ways you can do that. Well, the box um, work for but, one of them, that's, that yeah, was, is generally exactly. a good go-to, is that if the dog can start meditating on the box yeah, uh, and learn to do it. I mean, I know we're talking about doing a Patreon episode on the box very soon, yep. which will be, be great next month, um, yeah. because there's been so many questions around it. And I guess – there's been a lot of misconstructed actions on that as well. So I think you're going to try and clear <laughs> yes. that up for, for a lot for, for people so they can invest a little bit clearer on what that's all about. But I think yeah. I certainly think that's a good, a very good go-to place to start to bring the dog back to a – give the dog a bit of peace and a bit of time away from whatever's troubling it so it can start focusing on something. It doesn't. It's not to say, and I'm sure you would agree on this, that this is not a cure-all for all dogs. But it's a great starting place, and for some dogs, it's going to have a very profound and positive effect on them within a very short amount of time. Well, the beauty of it when you're dealing with a reactive dog or a fearful dog in any way, especially if there's a specific trigger, is that you don't have to address that trigger. And and I feel like a lot of the times in training, especially if you're alone, if you're training by yourself with a dog and maybe your trigger is something you don't have reliable access to, mm. then that's why the box is so handy. Especially, you know, um, uh, Jess Ward is on the Silver School at the moment, and she was one of my early, what would you call it, one of my early Student. trial specimens of the of the box. Yep. And she was one of the examples that we used in, in her dog being vaccinated with his head in the box. But she's telling me just the other day about, like, he's almost a different dog completely, and the big difference is the storm phobia. Yep. Um, and that's one of the things, you know, in the past, before I really knew how to desensitize counter condition indirectly, I have probably publicly even said that I don't think it's possible to address storm phobic dogs, dogs that react to storms because you can't, and I still believe this part is you can't replicate that reliably because loud noises is only one part of it. There's the atmospheric conditions, there's static in the air. There's, there's so many different things that happen in a storm yeah, that you can't replicate. Yeah, it's a catalyst of cascading and, events. 
Yeah, and you might be on your way to desensitizing, counter conditioning, all of those trigger events, yep. and then you're not home one day when there's a storm and everything that you've been working towards gets Goes undone. To shit. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And true. so I've 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 said publicly before, like I don't think that you can fix storm phobic dogs. Not that you, I don't think you can. I, I say that it's extremely difficult and unlikely to happen. Yeah. However, now I totally, I, I, you know, I've seen it with many times in that it's the indirect approach is that you just make a dog that is stronger in every way. So certainly living with a reactive dog and the box as, as a protocol for doing that is so powerful because it creates a, a tougher dog in every way. Mm. Certainly if you're working towards a specific trigger, you don't have to work sp- toward you don't have to use that specific trigger yep. in your training in your desensitizing counter condition you just make a stronger dog in general full stop tougher guy you know deal with the world and so that for sure is is my go-to in every every time i hear about a fearful or reactive dog that's what i want to do straight away and and for reactivity is often you know the dog is reacting to a stimulus as we say and the box is the technique to teach them to focus on a particular thing and not pay attention to anything else. So to, to be a one trick pony and carry on about the same thing, that's, <laughs> that's really like it's, it is the fix. Uh, and yes, I have to film that we're doing the, the Patreon thing and it's going to be a video, but it's not going to be a video. It's not going to be like a video of me and the dogs. There's a, there's shitloads of that out there. That that's all there. It's going to be me explaining it in front of a whiteboard and how to do the different styles depending on the different problems with the dog. Yep. Yeah, that's good. When you're talking about the use of the box and the the dog, I think the great thing about it is you described something to me a while ago, which I haven't really considered. And you're talking about the proper use of the box and how it should be meditation for the dog. Mm-hmm. And that was at the time when I started talking about how I was using that head product, the Muse, and um, oh, yeah. and quite. You're still a few. using that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still using it. I forget to use it, and then when I start feeling stressed again, I start going back to it. Mm-hmm. So it, there's two things that are actually great meditation for me at the moment. One I didn't expect, and one I kind of knew. One one is definitely the Muse, which is the known part of it. The unknown part of it is BJJ. Yeah. Um, that is helping me overcome a lot of like just times when I have troubling thoughts and I'm finding that I'm not at ease. I just find that going down there and spending an hour on the mats, rolling. Just through, rolling around, getting sweaty with other men. Other that's, dudes, that really puts you at ease. That puts me at ease. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> oh, dear. But it is. It's a form of meditation. And I think, yeah. you know, like when we're talking about these forms of meditation, there's a lot of people who have considered large dog socialization, but also talking about the social programs of working with dogs. And again, you know, like I brought her up many times before, but stealing some of the discussions from Esther Schalk and lateral thinking people like her are considerate of the fact that idle hands are the devil's tools. And that basically, mm. we've said that on the show many times, I know we have, but it's prevalent because while dogs haven't got a job to do, they're thinking about other things. And it's the same thing with people. The worst thing in the world for somebody to do is not feel that they have purpose in life. Mm-hmm. Um, when they don't feel that they have purpose in life or opportunity to do good, then they look for the opposite. And sometimes they don't even know. They don't even realize they're not aware of what they're doing is a bad thing. And we talked about this in the last episode, just a reference to it, referencing your son, Rip. 
about talking behavior and you said to me, um, you say he's got an issue. I don't think he's got an issue. I don't think he's got an issue. I just think he's exploring through behavior. And you made that point profoundly yourself. The other thing that I like to make people aware of with dogs all the time is dogs aren't aware that they're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. They're just aware Mm. that they're doing the thing they need to do at the time. They're Mm. in behavior and they're selective in behavior because that's what life determines you need to do. So when you aren't as analytic as what human beings are, when you're not sitting there and you're cognitive about what the whys, the hows, the whos, the whats. You're not contemplating everything. And I can't say this with absolution with dogs because like we've said, many of us have said this on the show before, the jury's still out in the intelligence of dogs. We can't determine how intelligent they are or are not. But Mm. from what we do know, what is measurable and what we currently know in science, we do know that dogs aren't as intelligent as human beings. So it's our current belief in science that they don't analyze and deep think about topics that we currently obsess over things that we, I mean, you know, there's no such thing as two dogs having a podcast with each other, but they communicate with each other. They communicate effectively. So they're effectively in behavior with whatever they're doing. And we, we're the ones that label it. We say, well, it doesn't subscribe to our form of living standard. So therefore it's a bad behavior or it does. So therefore it's a good behavior based on what human consumption is all about is does that fit does this fit my lifestyle no well it's bad behavior i've mm-hmm. there it is and some people might like that and therefore they say well that's good i like it when my dog does that when he's reactive to somebody that's cool so therefore in their definition of it it's a good behavior so yeah. you know we're stuck in that paradigm itself of it's by definition of the user you know the end consumer is the one who determines if if it's a good or bad behavior So Mm -hmm. the dog is stuck in that it's plateaued in that environment because it doesn't really know what it's supposed to do. And it's not until the dog either is reinforced or punished through through life to realize, well, I either need to do less of or stop this behavior or do more of or continue to do this behavior. You know, do I grow Mm -hmm. in it or do I reduce in it? So therefore... I'm a big believer and and I've seen more effect, including the work with the box and many other examples of that and better socialization practices, that dogs really do need a job. They need something to do. And especially the dogs that are suffering and have these reactivity issues. This is often the thing. Over the years of doing it, I've looked back and I've been a little bit more analytic. Um, and even this podcast has made me question a lot of things that, that we've done in the past and a lot of training etiquette that I've learned and, and so on and speaking with people and their preferences in training. Because a lot of the times when you really do look at it, they're not meeting the needs of the dogs. They're not even close. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the dog is basically, it's coming to terms with the fact, well, this entertains me in a way. Yeah. I think, you know, certainly with some pet people, what gets called reactivity is just like displaced nervous energy. Yeah. And, you know, that that's obvious to me, say, at the moment where I'm I'm working away from home. Like my, my schedule is out at the moment and I have to meet my dog's needs in, in irregular times. I'm getting up at 4.30 in the morning so that I can make sure that my dog gets his needs met prior to me going to work at the, at the army base doing this Nipopo school because – he would be bouncing off the walls displaying what you would maybe observe and say like or become a reactive dog and I don't want that to happen. So mm. therefore I have to – he has a job, he has things that I know keep him under control and stop those behaviours coming on. 
and I'm not around during the day to do those. So I have to find the time to, and I have to, I have to give him the outlets. I have to find the time. Yep. We have to go train in the morning. He has to pull the sled. He has to do all those things so that he can keep his shit together through the day. And if you've got a dog like mine and you're not doing those things, and then you're wondering why he's just bouncing off the walls all the time, you might look at that dog and go, oh, nervous or, you know, reactive to stimulus or whatever, but he's just, he's just got a lot of energy to burn yep. and he's, you know, reacting to the environment because he has such built up energy and, and it's got to go somewhere. And so totally, I agree. It's giving that dog, giving every dog a job and a purpose and a, and a, a, a focused training program with mm. something that they do. I think that again is an indirect treatment of reactivity and, and therefore living with a reactive dog. Cause you know, that's, that's Sian or Sian Marie. That's what she actually says, living with reactive dogs. That's a question. And, and yeah. I, I know for sure the, the path to, to living with a reactive dog peacefully is reducing the triggers. Well, reducing the things that make that dog reactive. And I, I believe that even if it is fear-based, giving them jobs to do and training that they can focus on will go towards making them braver, not just the box. You know what I mean? Like it, there, there's other things, there's other activities you can do, get them on a mill, get them, you know, just training, just doing things in the environment, give them giving a, a job. to focus on. Yeah, they've got on. to have a job. Yeah. Yep. You know, as I was just thinking when you were talking as well, like so many different facets of reactivity and we're trying to cover them all. One of the interesting ones I think people don't think about too much is, you know, that dog we talked about at the start that maybe is actually just quite social and wants to play with other dogs. Yep. I manage that in, in one of two ways. I think that the dogs don't need other dog friends, right? That they, they they might like them, but they don't they don't need them. That that's a um, very good point, and that that was actually a point I wanted to talk more about on this. So it's it's great you're going down this angle because yeah yeah it's very. So important. I think I think that if you're if you want your dog to play with other dogs and you you're okay with that and you can provide you have access to dogs that are safe and the the play will be fine. You then just have to control that, and that is a high-value reinforcer to your dog. Yep. And so you should approach it as such. We don't, you know, as most dog trainers, and you're always talking about, you don't feed from the bowl, so you don't just give that dog free access to playing yep. with other dogs. You use it as a high-level motivator. And yep. for a lot of people, you know, when you're dealing with pet clients and they have a dog that they say – this always made me laugh when I talk to pet people. They say, on our way to the park – he drags me like a freight train and on the way home, he just walks casually next to me because he's tired. Yeah, and I fulfilled. say, no, it's mm. not because he's tired. It's dragging you to the park because that's his giant reinforcer yep. and he's in a rush to get there and he's not dragging you home because he has no desire to go home. There's no, he's not, it can't wait to get home to, <laughs> to be put in the backyard again. Have I ever so told you how long it took me with Harley to stop him from doing that to me? No. When Harley was alive, you know who Harley is. I've told you about him yeah, before. Yeah. When Harley was alive, and this is years and years ago, he's been dead for years now, but when he was alive, it took me a solid month to stop him from dragging me down to the park, and that's exactly the same scenario. So yeah. I was relentless about it, and I would not let it continue, and I never, ever let him off lead while he was dragging me down there. What yeah. I had to do was totally re-educate him on how we walked down to the park, so it took me a solid month before he finally got it and accepted it and relented to the fact that nothing will ever happen favorably to me while I'm doing this or trying to run and escape to play with the other dogs. So yeah. after we conditioned the behavior, he was absolutely fine about it forevermore. He, he actually yeah. learned at that stage, strut down to the park, run off, 
burn off all your energy, come back when you're cold, hop on the lead, go home, and we get to do it all again tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. So I think that if your dog is happy to play with other dogs and that reactivity to other dogs is truly that they just want to go play with them, well, then you have a very powerful reinforcer on your hands right Mm. there. Right, like if you have a dog that's going to nail himself at the end of the leash, and you're, you know, you always have that picture of someone who's got the dog on the prong collar and and smashing it, and that the dog's still just trying to fight to get to the end of the leash. Well, that's a lot of hope in that behaviour. Yeah, right? That's a really, is. that's a powerful training tool you have there. Those same people are probably using their clicker, and the dog barely wants to eat, and you know, casually strolls over to them and is like, "Oh, have you got some food?" And then you've got this ultimate jackpot of going to play with other dogs. So, for my mind, I think you're crazy not to use that. I always talk about at the moment when I talk about markers. I don't think I've talked about it on the show very much because it sort of escapes me a little bit. I don't think of it in training so much. But I, one of the markers that I definitely have with all my dogs is I just say, "Okay," and that's a a release to the environment. That's just like literally go do whatever you want. And for my dog, that means – depending on the dog, for Valerie, that means go chase birds. And for Remy, that means, you know, go do backflips somewhere. Like, But it's go and do whatever you want. And then having the ability to release the dog to the environment – it gets over. It seems so simple, but a lot of people don't ever do that. They finish their training. The dog's on leash. Okay, and they go, yep, good job. We're going to go, right? And the dog never gets to go it's and unclear. be free. Yeah, it's unclear. And what I like about that is then when I have distractors in the environment, they're not distractors. They're indirect rewards. Mm. And I, I'm trying to as, as much as possible when I talk about training is to get away from that word distraction. I don't believe that a dog can be distracted by anything. He's just motivated in another direction. You, you have to control that motivation. And so we talk about then what you know, do you, the club. What do you term as a distraction? Well, I don't, I don't see anything as a distraction. If a dog is, is trying to look at something else other than what I want him to look at, mm. it's because he's motivated towards that. So everything that could possibly distract my dog is just what he's more motivated to look at. It's just more motivating to do that. And so uh, now if that's something that it is possible for my dog to be to, to engage with, if I'm okay with that, then I'm crazy if I use that, if I don't use that as a reinforcer. Mm. And, and the classic example, you know, when we have people in the club and they say, oh, I can't come to training because my dog's in heat. I'm like, no, you come to training. And they're like, oh, I have to be careful. I'll make sure, I'll make sure the dog empties out like right at the front of the field. I'm like, no way. Take her on the field and let her piss on the field. But I want to know exactly where it pissed. I wanted you to put a flag in there and I want to know exactly where it is. And now that's my reinforcer because that's one of the most strong things. This is one of the strongest things my dog can find as a reinforcer. And if I know where it is and I control my dog's access to it, then that's really powerful for me because later when my dog smells that, he will still perform tasks under control because he thinks it's possible he'll be released to that. And the only way he's going to believe that that's possible is because I've done it many times in the in the past. Mm. And so it's the same with the release to the environment to just go and play with, you know, chase birds or for my dogs to play with each other or in the case that we're talking about is to just go play with other dogs. Both my dogs, well, Remy is quite social. Val doesn't have a lot of value in other dogs, but he enjoys playing with other dogs. He would much rather work for the ball or for food or whatever. He would rather engage with me. But if I'm not giving him the engagement that he wants, he'll he'll happily find that with other dogs. And so for 100%, I use that. I, I use that as a motivator all the time because when I'm going to need a recall and, and I don't have reinforcers on me, so if a situation catches me by surprise – it, my recall will work because I almost always have my reinforcer available to me because whatever he's at, what some people would say he's distracted by, 
I say no, at that time he is motivated by it and he understands that I can call him off of the same way I can get him to drop his ball and come into heel to go and get the same ball again. Yep. If he's playing with another dog, he knows I can call him back from that other dog to come into the heel because there's a very good probability I'm going to let him go back to play with that other dog. And so the only way that he believes that that is the the truth is because it has been many times. And when it on that day it is a problem, like we spoke about in an episode a few weeks ago where he was stuck next to a dog reactive dog and was in a position where it was difficult to call him away. My competition whistle, even though I don't have my reinforcers on me, works a charm. He can't help but fly back. Mm. And then there's the, – he, he knew at that time – well, he can't know, but he, I didn't have any of my reinforcers on me, but I had the whole environment that he was happily playing in. And there's the possibility of being released to that. So I think that if your dog likes to play with other dogs and you are – you're okay with that and you have the opportunity and it's safe to do so and blah, 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 all the things that everybody worries about, all those things are covered off. I personally think you're crazy if you don't use that as a jackpot-style reinforcer. As long as you and know especially, about it. Say again? As long as you know about it. As long as yeah, you're aware right. of it. That's, that's what I'm like saying. The as exam- long as you yeah. control it. It's like, it's like the example you're using with female in season scent. You know, like it, that's fine as long as you know about it. The yeah, time where it training. drives me crazy is when someone brings a dog on the field and you don't know about it and then your dog is distracted by it or motivated yeah, that's to right. it. But but that's not a problem if you have trained the pitcher prior. Yeah, that's, if you know about it and you about. can control how the dog behaves around it and use it as reinforcement to say to the dog, yeah, you can go off and smell it after we've done this exercise, no problem. Yeah, so in the training you know about it. Yeah. But on the day when you don't know about it, he knows about it very much and he smells it and goes, aha, that's going to be my reinforcer. I'll do what I'm told because there's It'll a good the probability yeah. I'm going to be sent to that. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. So that's, that's important to me. But I think that it, as we're talking about, if, if that's what your dog is motivated by, use that reinforcer. Don't try and fight with another competing reinforcer if you don't need to. Use that opportunity. Yeah. You can play with other dogs conditional on this. But on the flip side, I then want to talk about – if your dog is not good playing with other dogs and you decide that you don't want to do it, then that needs to be the case 100% of the time. Yeah. I feel like once you decide you're going down that route, you know, before, sorry, before I go into this, you know, I'm not a big, I have social dogs that I socialize my dogs in, in just in the world, but I don't run socials. You know, this is a Chad Mack and this is a Alex Edwards topic, but both of them for sure have, I've heard say that one of the best ways to have a dog who, has social issues is socialization, right? So that he gets out, like the more you get to play with dogs, the less value value playing with dogs has. Value Mm. is related to scarcity. So a dog that has is overly frustrated and doesn't get to play with dogs as much as he wants, by allowing him to play with dogs more, he then doesn't want to so much because value is related to scarcity. But there's a point of diminishing return on that where the hope disappears. Eventually they give up the idea of getting to play with other dogs. And for some people, like certainly – that assistance dog that I trained was the same. So he was overly socialized with other dogs. He was 16 weeks old when they got him yep. and was left with his litter mates until 16 weeks old. So all of the, the his imprinting was done on other dogs. He really, you know, sometimes we talk about does a dog identify as a dog or as a person and we'll never know that for sure. But I feel like a dog that was raised with other dogs, stayed with his litter mates till he's 16 weeks old. He's a dog in his mind. He knows for sure, like, I, I prefer the company of dogs. I hang out with other dogs rather than prefer the company of people. And so he would see so other got, dogs. Um, and was, non-binary dogs now. 
<laughs> but I, I mean, this is totally anecdotal, but I feel like a lot of the time people, if you get a dog at the right age at, at you know, seven, eight weeks or whatever, you raise it in the home. It doesn't spend a lot of time with other, other dogs. It becomes if more human to, orientated. Yeah. Yep. And if you were to ask him, hey, you know, where do you fit into this? He'd be like, I'm just a weird, furry little member of this family. Yep. And then what I regularly see, and again, this is anecdotal, is when those people get a second dog and they have the dogs together, the second dog is more dog-like and dog-orientated yeah. than the first yeah, dog that. because he's got the second dog in the home. Yep. And that's so, how I've explained that to people for years. That They either they say to me, what do you think of the dog? And I mean, it's... You only it's described by observation, really. I mean, you you observe the dog in behaviour, and if the dog is more um, motivated by the actions and the stimuli of other dogs, then you know that that dog is is more of a dog dog than a human dog. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, and like I say, there's nothing that I don't know that there's any way we could ever scientifically measure that. There's probably not a lot that it's just would through observation. That. And that's, that's right. That's how science is is formulated through the powers of observation. Yeah. Well, anyway, so as I say, if you then go, okay, well, this dog is never going to play with other dogs, that has to be the case all the time. Mm. And we're dealing in training, we're dealing in, in hope, we're hope dealers. And if we if we want a behavior to go away, then we have to just completely remove hope, just eradicate it altogether. And there'll be an extinction burst, that behavior will get stronger, that behavior will be more obvious to us, he will try and harder to play with other dogs, he'll become more reactive to other dogs. And when then eventually, uh, you know, and every dog's timeline is different and how you address this in the meantime and the uh, punishments and reinforcers that you use, but eventually that hope will die. Mm. And the dog, if he's never allowed to play with another dog, he will realize that he never will again and he'll stop trying to do that. Now, every dog is different, but what where people fuck themselves doing this is they just about get that behavior gone and then through their own laziness or something that happens outside their control, I certainly believe that happens. You turn a street corner and there's another dog there, yeah. well, then you're fucked hmm. because then your dog is like, man, I was just about to give up on this. I was about to stop buying these lottery tickets. I was almost ready to give up my gambling but addiction. Now, and then now boom, I see value in doing it. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's and happened. So that's gotta, unfortunately happened to a lot of that. people who have done extremely good work. They brought their dog back to a neutral position where the dog is behaving exactly the way they wanted it to. And foolishly, they've done something like take their dog to a dog park where it should never have done it. And let me say on this, we have made it clear multiple times there are some dogs that just don't need to be force socialized with other dogs they really don't mm. want to do it they don't like doing it. it's the same thing with people sometimes people they don't they don't function well in large groups of people they just don't like it they're not extroverts in behavior they're more introverted in the way they behave they prefer sitting inside reading a book spending times with a couple of friends rather than a lot of people and it's the same it's you know i was thinking about this in the car on the on the way home i don't know why but there's conception that, you know, you have to get out there and, and own multiple properties and wealth create. And if you don't do that, you're a failure where other people think to themselves, well, success is not based on having multiple properties and a large bank account and a Mercedes and looking like a million dollars. Success for me is grifting through life, you know, enjoying nature mm. and doing all those sort, sort of things. I think this is a misconception that we miss a lot in not only our human counterparts with our dog counterparts as well. Mm. We often misdiagnose it because we're so steadfast in 
what the popular concept of fashion or um, success looks like or what the popular conception of what dog socialization looks like. So with Randy, I couldn't give a shit if Randy socialized with dogs or not because he doesn't care about them. He's okay to be around them. And that's the main thing. And that's the only thing that I'm concerned about is that he is not overly concerned about other dogs. He enjoys his time with me more. So even when there's mm. other dogs in the backyard with him, it's like, get out of my way, you know? Like, I'm, I want to play ball with Glenn. I don't want to play with you. Um, yeah. And it's not like he's mean to them or anything like that. It's just like he's just thinking, you know, I'm not really interested or not in, into this game with you. So I don't think a dog like that has to be forced into a social position because he doesn't want it. He doesn't need it. It's not something that he subscribes to. But the, like I said, the very fact that he's happy enough to be around other dogs and they don't bother him. I mean, it's, it's the same thing even when I'm walking up to PSA. he's not, He doesn't care about the other dogs that are on the field, whether they're going in or going out. He's just waiting for his turn to get on the field. He's mm. waiting to interact with me. And that makes me happy in my heart. You know, I'm happy about the fact that my dog could not give a shit. And to be quite frank, that's the way I've engineered it. I've engineered mm. it to specifically be like that. So with people that have these non-social dogs sometimes, once you get them to the point where they don't want to react, where they they feel harmony about dogs being around them, then don't go ahead and start forcing them to be around those dogs. I think yeah. that's anybody who encourages to do that. I'd, I'd really... I'd really ask you to to dive deep on that a little bit and just say, what's the need for it? Do I need to do yeah. this or is it just something that you want me to do because it makes you feel better about yourself? Yeah, for sure. That's something we see a fair bit, especially in this area that people have like dog park friends, Yep. you know, and uh, they want to – and that's great. It's social for them. It's fine but if, if the dogs want to do certainly, it. Yeah, but there's certainly people who will say – you know, they're almost trying to push their dogs into being social with the other dogs when you can see that the yeah. dog's just not interested and not not aversive to it, but just has no interest in it. My old border collie, Ernie, he was uh, – he hated going to the park to do nothing. He was a runner, me, and it was back when I actually had a body that worked, and me and Ernie used to just run everywhere. We'd, I'd take him running, and he'd come with me everywhere we went. But that was and if joy, you went right? to the park, he would just kind of stare at you and be like, what hey, what are we do? doing here? Yeah. Like, what's the deal? Mm. And he wasn't a real ball chaser or anything. I mean, he was a seven-year-old border collie when I got him, and I knew nothing about dog training. Um, but he didn't want to play with other dogs. He was not – I never saw any dog aggression from him ever in his life or, or fear or anything. He just would stare at other dogs like, what value do you have? Like, you, you have nothing for me. And then he'd just stare at me like, hey, when are we going to go running? I don't understand what we've come to this grassy area for if we're not going to go running around. Like, what what on earth are we doing here? Yeah. Um, I think and you- I was foolish at the time too. I was like, oh, we'll take him down the park and he can hang out with other dogs. And he'd just stare at me like, I can stare at you at home where my couch <laughs> and my toys are. Like, yep. what, what have we come here for? I think if you get in that position in your life where you refuse to acknowledge what you're observing – especially in situations like that where, you know, like a a picture speaks a thousand words in many situations. And in those sort of circumstances, your dog is explaining to you the best way it it knows how. I don't want to be in this situation. I don't want Mm. to play with these dogs. I'm not aggressive to them. I don't really care about them, but I don't want to be here. Or I don't Mm. want to be in this location. I don't really care for it. It doesn't really do anything for me. Then if you still insist upon doing that, you have to really question yourself, not only as a dog owner, but if you're doing it as a dog trainer, my God, then you really need to question your craft. Should you be still mm. considering being a dog? Because that's like a science, uh, being, being a scientist and ignoring observable science right in front of your face and just saying, you know what? 
uh, I'll just I'll just um, burn that trial and just hope that nobody else noticed it because I don't really want that to be successful. And oh, it's well, a, that happens. It does. Happens it does. All the time. Of course, it does. Especially when it's when it's it's not viable or it's going to it's going to it turn doesn't show what the sponsors wanted it to show exactly yeah and but yeah. but when you're willfully doing that with your dog i really think you have committed a crime a canine law crime yeah. and the and the canine police should come after you really because you're just doing yourself a great disservice but not only that i mean it's ter- i think it's a terrible lifestyle for the dog too that it's forced upon the dog that the dog must endure something that's one of the things that you said, not that specific point. It wasn't that specific point, but what the point was that you said is that, you know, it keeps you up sometimes at night wondering what all these dogs who don't get drive satisfaction are doing, you know, like are sitting in their backyard and, and not getting their drive satisfaction met. Well, I think another one, and I'm, you know, I think one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot more is why are people insisting on making their dogs do something they don't want to do? You know why aren't they uh, why aren't they looking more into the behaviour of their dog and saying, you know, my dog doesn't actually like this situation. He doesn't like um, being dragged off to dog parks, or he doesn't mm-hmm. like being taken to the park and having a ball thrown for him. It's torturous and and monotonous for the dog. He'd rather be running with me or doing something that the dog enjoys doing. Don't insist on doing something your dog doesn't want to do. It finds no joy, no life in doing. You know, I think that's a much deeper question. It is really, isn't it? Yeah, because you know, we sort of segued into something quite tumultuous there. Well, one of the things that's interesting to me is the stigma around moving a dog on, Mm. right? And so, like, we have it culturally to us: you get a dog, you get it for life, right? Yeah. And that was always my picture of like that's what you had to do. And certainly, I think that if you just go like, I don't want this dog anymore, you're out on the street, then you're a total piece of shit. You're, this is not what I'm talking about. Yep. But sometimes people and a dog aren't a, good, aren't a good fit. And there's the idea of like privately rehoming a dog, like not just, you know, dumping him at the rescue and saying, good luck. But that idea of like, hey, this dog doesn't fit. We don't, we're not a good mix. The dog doesn't like either. me. It's not happy. It's not, its lifestyle is not fulfilled being with me. Yeah, and yeah. that's totally uh, – that happens all the time. It does. And, 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 it does with families people, too, with children and wives and husbands. Yeah, but but there's – I mean, I feel like there's there's less stigma around getting a fucking divorce than there is moving a dog on. And, now and there people is. have that. Now there is. People have that – like it's a really hard hurdle to get over. And I think even people in the dog world, they kind of find themselves like, no, this is the dog I've got forever. And maybe you've got a great – you know, I know people who want a competition dog and they don't have it and they're like, well, now I have to wait another 10 to 15 years before I try again another competition dog. I'm like, no, you have the perfect pet dog. Yep. And there are people out there who are in desperate search for that pet dog and you can just move that dog on. Or if the dog is, you know, my dog's too civil to do what I want to do and I say, well, he can go work on a door somewhere. This is not like uh, – I, you know, I've much – for a long time now, I've wanted the do- the job as the dog allocator. Yeah. <laughs> I totally want to just be able to take dogs off people and go, you don't deserve this dog and that dog it can do better than you and put that and, – and somehow in my magical dog allocator's brain, know the person that's looking for that kind of dog and do the shuffle and go, okay, you're getting the couch potato from over here and you're getting the athlete from over here and I'm, everybody's going to be happy and I'm going to allocate oh God, all the dogs and everybody's going to get pets. the right fit. Say again? Perfect match for pets. Yeah, that would be it, right? Like a dating website where you swap dogs. Mm. Hang on, we might be onto something there. Yeah, well, you you can be the new Greg Evans. (laughs) (laughs) 
but yeah, I just feel like there, there's a real stigma around that. And I had, I had that myself until you, until you manage that. And, and for me, it came by raising a dog for someone else. So it was never my, it was, I was never going to get to keep the dog. That was never on the cards. Yep. I was only having the dog. The first time I did that was I was just having the dog until it was like 12 weeks old, eight to 12 weeks old. And mm. people see you with a puppy and they're like, whoa, you got a new puppy. That's amazing. And I was like, no, this is not my puppy. I'm just raising it for someone else. And then it goes. And people in rescue do this all the time. Like, you know, as we talked about Dallas, like those fosterers, they just have the dog for a period until it, they find the right person that moves on. And I tell people, I tell a lot of my clients when they're, they're looking for a a sport dog or a, or a working dog or whatever, I'm like, just get the dog with the idea that it's not permanent. And that doesn't mean you you treat it any different and you start treating it as, oh, it's definitely going to be the dog that is right for you. But exactly that, if you're having a negative impact on each other's lives, if that's not the dog you want, you're going to resent it for the rest of its life. Or if you are going to have to force that dog into a shitty existent, com- existence compared to what someone else might be able to give it, then I feel like as an industry, we should I don't know, maybe just if there's a stigma, get over it because I think there is a stigma around that and and it, it it's only and, – and people tend to imply it to themselves, not so much to other people. They're like, oh, this is – you know, my ethics told me I've got this dog for life. And if someone else can give that dog a better life, then that's, in my opinion, not ethical. I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking out loud here, Glenn. Help me out. Well, <laughs> I'm not wed to it. I'll use, I'll use a case example out. of this that when I was at school – there was a brother and sister that was – the brother was in my year group and the sister was, I think, she was either in my sister's year group or below or around that area. But what happened was um, there was issues with their parents. I'm not sure what they were, but the kids weren't doing well at home with, with the parents and they went to live with their aunt and uncle. They went from unachievers, in trouble all the time. Both of them were, you know, like I think they were – mocked and picked on at school i don't it's not a good situation but their whole life was just miserable while they were at home with their parents however Mm. when they went to live with their aunt and uncle who were a lot stricter on them who were um, more demanding of their social activities and the way that they perform their school homework and their curriculum around school within around two years these two kids had transformed into they didn't even look the same the way they looked, they came mm. to school, dressed well, groomed well, looked well, ate well, performed well, spoke well. So everything that happened in that transition between parents to aunt and uncle had transformed those children into high achievers. You know, they mm. were, they were academically coming up in the world, socially moving up in the world. Like I said, they became different people based on a, a course correction in their lifestyle. And to reinforce what you were putting forward before is if this happens the same with a dog, like if a dog is not doing well in a home and therefore you take on the due diligence or your duty of care to that dog to rehome that into a, a better lifestyle where that dog can have that course correction and be the dog it needs to be in that home, then mm. it's like a perfect ending fairy tale. Everyone lives happily ever after. We know that doesn't always work out that way. You know, sometimes that could be a bit of a pipe dream. However, again, you pointed this out before where you said, you know, if you do your job properly and you rather than just dump this dog on to some unsuspecting schmo out there or just dump it into welfare or something like that, but you actually go out there and look for the right home, 
understand what the precursors and the requirements of the dog's behavior and how it would marry up with the right people and at least do some form of interview with the person and um, allow them to have a grace period with the dog to see how it goes, I think you could find that you could do quite a lot of justice in the dog's life by doing something as simple as that. Yeah, and and in the working dog world, that's that's quite normal. That that's totally what happens because dogs either have the goods or they don't for the work, and they have to go somewhere else. And people, you don't end up, you know, if you're most people in the working dog industry are you know ethical people, and they know okay, like I have channels mm. by which the dogs that don't work out, I have channels that they have that those dogs can go into. I think. You know, I, I, we mentioned it briefly before. I can't remember what context it was in, but Mike Suttle's a, a, a well-known person. I was just about person. to say Mike Suttle. He's a good example because yeah. he constantly – He's a well-known person for giving – like of his, from dogs from his own kennel, he, if they don't work out, he gives a, a, a fair – you know, he's got however many thousand followers on Facebook. He gives a fair assessment of the dog and explains why it's not going further in his program yep. and gives them away, like not – doesn't – you know, try and turn a profit on them. It's like, this dog is not suitable. Here's the reason. And, you know, again, to point out what a good guy he is, it'll be my turn to hang on to his pocket instead of you this time, <laughs> is that regularly fucking bites him in the ass because he's then had people, you know, breeding those dogs and claiming that they bought it off him. And, and it's been, I've seen numerous things unfold, but he's true to his guns. He's like, no, this is what we do with those dogs. So the dogs that don't make it and, and, Every breeder, a lot of breeders will tell you, no, they all make it and they're all amazing. Well, that's fucking bullshit. That it just doesn't bullshit. happen. Yeah, that is the way the dice rolls of the in the genetic lottery. That means that there's always washouts. That always happens. And instead of just disappearing, he puts them out there and says, "Hey, here's the deal." And if someone wants a nice looking duchy, here he is. But he ain't gonna work. If yep. you want a, a nice companion dog, we've we've got one here. He's he's ready to go. And, and, and I just think that it's such a common thing you see in working dogs. And, and I think a lot of pet people, if they could just come to terms with that, would maybe be a lot happier um, in their lives and allow their pets to be much happier, provided mm. the rehoming happens in exactly – like I want to stress that enough. It's not that you just get rid of the dog. I'm in no way, shape or form saying that. You never said it's, that. Yeah, find the right home and yep. put that dog in the place where he should be. And and more often than not, this is a trade like a a trade up. It's because people have the perfect dog for like like the type of people who are like this dog's not doing what I want. It's because it doesn't have the drive that they mm. want, and so that's the perfect dog for someone else. And the people who are looking to move it, like the average pet person who's looking to move a dog on, is because they have too much go in that dog. And if for whatever reason, as trainers and dog world people, we can't motivate them into doing the things with that dog, because that's just not some people. That's just not what some people are going to do. We can try as, as hard as we like. That You're never going to convince everybody that has a dog suitable for GRC to go into GRC. We yep. can try and we should, but we're never going to convince everyone. And so sometimes it needs to be a just a way to say to people, hey, there's another option. You can give it to this guy and he is going to do GRC or yep. he is – this dog is one in a million dog and he's going to go on to – he can do protection sports or, you know, whatever. Whatever the thing is, he can be the best doc dog in the world or, or he can go to the army and become a scent dog. You know, whatever. Whatever mm. it is. But I don't know. I, I feel there's like a lot as an of industry options. we should do more to, to convince people that that's okay. Yep. That's a bit of a rant. Yeah. Hey, do you reckon we answered the question? As best as we could at this point in time. The question was... 
living with a reactive dog and misconceptions of reactive dogs? I think so. I feel that we did. Yeah, I feel we did answer it, and I would uh, after we do the episode. Hopefully, Sian gets to listen to this episode, and I think she will be the one to determine whether we answered it to uh, her fulfilment. You know, it'll probably end up being there'll be like some facet of reactivity that we didn't talk about at all. Like, oh well, actually, I was talking about doorbell reactivity. So thanks for nothing, you fucks. Well, you should stipulate that in your uh, in your question. <laughs> but yeah, I think that, that that's it. Well, right? if we need like, to do a part two, we can do a part two. Yeah. I, I think manage while you can address the reactivity. And and if it's fear-based, make the dog strong. If it's a desire that uses a reinforcer and do, do it that way. I am just always careful of, of that management. I think that so many people fall into a trap of management. I've done it in the past and I'm more and more convinced that on a long enough timeline, management fails. Mm. So do like- Give your dog a use- job. That's my advice to a lot of people is give your dog something efficient to do in, in life. It mm. needs to yeah, like, that. well, yeah, I just think f- there's far too many unfulfilled dogs out there. They're not doing enough. They need to do more. That's part of the responsibility, guys. I mean, if you and I know many of our listeners understand this because they're just as frustrated as we are about it because they're also seeing clients and echoing these same words. But nonetheless, and this is a, you know, I feel this is a constant bugbear of mine, made mention of it many times and, and probably will well into the future, is that we are, and we do have great access to such a wealth of information. And it puzzles me the fact that things that I would have I just can't believe when I when I was first learning to train dogs, you know, like you'd have to actually go to libraries and read books and watch old crusty VHS <laughs> tapes to get access to the the information, you know, and it was so difficult to get. But now it's like a, a five second Google search to yeah. get a myriad of answers on YouTube and and social media, whatever platform you want to do it. I mean, you've got literally thousands and thousands of hours of very, very good work out there that people are giving away for free that you can you can pretty much train a dog without putting a cent down for it. You know, mm. the only thing it costs you is your internet connection. That's about it. You yeah. know, but that some of the material I've read, some of the science papers that people have put up in the Balance Symposium or even on the Canine Paradigm or in other people's forums that I'm involved in, that you're involved in, that many other people are involved in. I mean, there is so much fucking good information out there. It yeah. is it is mind-boggling how people still miss the point on some of the most conscripted basics that are out there in training at this point in time. And, yeah. I, and I get it, and I said this last week, and I do understand – I know this is an oxymoron in itself because I just said I don't get it, and now I say I do get it. <laughs> <laughs> you and I laughed about this the other day. That was quite funny. But yeah. – um, but I un- I do understand that, you know, with enough time and practice, you and I could be surgeons. You know, we could do operations if we were taught how to do it. Okay. Mm. The fact is, is that we haven't gone down that pathway. We haven't, it, it, that's not, uh, that doesn't fulfill our job satisfaction, basically. But when it, we have more time, remind well, me to tell the story about the time I performed surgery on a guy. Well, we, 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 <laughs> that is something I do want to know about. But the reality is, is that we could do it. There's nothing to say that we couldn't do it because a lot of people go into becoming GPs and surgeons and so forth, but it's it's the time that they allocate to it. Yeah. However, I mean, in a pinch, it sounds like you've done it, you know? So, <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I mean, I, look, I taught myself to weld watching YouTube. 
Mm-hmm. I literally, I sat there with my iPad and I just burnt metal until it actually started to work. And that's how I yeah. learned to do it. So there is a lot of, my, my point is, my frustration is, is there's a lot of real, I know there's a lot of crap information out there and there's a lot of people who call themselves dog trainers who aren't. I mean, there's people in all sorts of fields who say they're doctors, lawyers, you know, investment bankers and et cetera, et cetera. And that list goes on and on and on. There's a lot of people out there who are in that field, but the reality is there's a lot of amazing people out mm. there too. And I made that point before who are giving this information away for free. It's just people aren't choosing to access it. They're not making yeah. good choices in their information. They're, they're being lazy. That's what I'm trying to get to. If I'm being honest, they're being lazy in their approach to it. Mm. Hey, before we wrap up, something I was thinking about before, sure. and I just want to tell a little story and give a big shout out to Alex Hill, who bred my little Springer. Yep. So I've got these clients at the moment, Rachel with this American bulldog, really nice little bully, but he's like 16 weeks old and he's quite a lot of drive. They've cultivated it all. They want to they wanted do GRC with him. They've been, you know, as good a clients as you can imagine. Cameron did lessons prior to even getting the dog. Yep. Organized a Skype session for me to talk to the breeder to get the dog started before they even got it. You know, like everything's on track and the dog's doing great. Yep. Well done, guys. But, you know, he he's a 16-week-old American bully. He's a, a enthusiastic player and needs to learn to modulate his – and regulate himself in play with other dogs, yep. right, and, and being around other dogs. And because being a bully, there's, you know, such a – a high likelihood of dog aggression developing, I wanted, I told them, I, you know, we need to manage all of his interactions with other dogs. It needs to be, uh, because they live in the city, they live in this area, they need, you know, they're going to be interacting with other dogs. That's inevitable to have, to say that, to go down that path, like we said, where the dog never gets interacted with other dogs, that's just not, that's not a reality that they can live in. So anyway, little Valerie comes out to work, right? So in my garage, they're about the same size now. He's 16 weeks old. And same deal, he sees her, just loses his mind and starts trying to play with her. And you just have never seen a dog, or you probably have, but just so perfectly correct another dog in a way, like teach that dog about play in a way that you or I or any other human being just does not have the capacity to do. Yep. And he was, you know, she she loves puppies, so they had a little play, and then he jumped all over him, was too much, so he got corrected, and then he had never been corrected in that way before, so he came back again, and she corrected him again, and almost went, not overboard, but she did it perfectly, where he was a little bit upset, and he ran over to Rachel's legs and, like, hid between her legs, and then little Valerie goes trotting over and actually, like, recovers him. So it's not like she just, like, Gave him the correction and then she realized, oh, okay, maybe that was too much. He ne- It's what he needed, but maybe this was getting close to being aversive and giving him a bad experience. And she identified that and then went over and actually sort of nussled him a little bit and was like, hey, we're still allowed to play. You're just not allowed to play like that. Like I could see that was exactly what she communicated to him. She's like, well, you can hang out. We can be together, but you just can't be a little fucker like that. You have to keep your shit together. Hang and on, that hang little on. bulldog got it. Hang on. Are you implying live on air that your dog used physical force to correct another dog? <laughs> and that I, I and am that, I cannot and believe that, that punishment was highly effective. I, I cannot I believe am. what I'm hearing here. <laughs> Lord, I am. Lord, Can you it? Lord, take me now, please. You know this but, this world is just not for me anymore. 
I know, right? <laughs> but to finish on that note, like I just thought it was one of the most. I was thinking about oh, it as we were talking about you socializing with Did dogs. Did you film it? No, we were just we we're just standing there watching mm, it. But it'll happen shame. again. It happens. It happens with every puppy yeah. I put her in front of. But the 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 correcting dog, she always does it. I use her for that all the time. She's perfect for modulating other dogs' behavior. But that where she almost went too far, and that little dog was okay. Like I'm a little bit scared, and I retreat to my to my owner. Mm. And I said, "Don't do anything. Just leave him. Leave him be. Let him find this out." And she came over and was like, "Hey." We can still play. You're not you're not in trouble. You just can't play like that. And he was like, okay. And and next thing they're just kind of, you know, awkwardly standing next to each other, bowing at each other, and nothing nothing crazy's going on. Well, I just can't believe that nature can regulate itself without human intervention. <laughs> <laughs> and there's so many shocks, so many auditorial firsts that are happening for me today. Yeah, I just cannot yeah, yeah. believe it. Yeah, yeah I think exactly. one of the greatest imbalances in nature is human intervention. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. But, and, but we're, we're just so um, arrogant in our approach to it. It really is quite silly. But this is the thing: like her being able to do that. Like I say, there's no way I can teach a dog that as effectively as she can. That yeah. is impossible. She did six weeks worth of work in two minutes, right there, and Beautiful. and was more permanent in that dog's mind, and is going to have a more lasting effect on him for the rest of his life. Uh, of course, it has to be generalized. I'm not saying that this. She is did the that with Remy a little bit too, right? She does it with all puppies. Yeah. And like she's the ultimate at it. And she's very caring. She's very she's very good with other dogs, but she's she's very good at she gives them a lot of strength. She gives them a safe place to be, but she also accepts no bullshit from them either. Like she's like, This is these are the rules. But you know, she's <laughs> that little Springer has raised some pretty tough mallies and she knows when I bring one home and put it in the yard, like and, and when I have other people's dogs and I put them in the yard, she's like, Okay. I have a small window in time where I have to get in your head before you turn into a, a, a machine that could bite me in half. Yep. She can back Remy down with a stare and does every day. Yeah, that's when, cool. And like the only thing that she really guards in the house is me. Like she, you know, when we go out, he gets all of my attention. She goes and does Val stuff. But then she's like, no, when we're cuddling on the couch, that is our time and you do not interrupt that. And he kind of, he stands there like, oh God, oh, oh. and just with a stare, she just does it. And it's, it. there's no way, like she couldn't physically best him in any way, shape or form. He could bite her in half, in a heartbeat. Yeah. Like it would be nothing, but she's mm-hmm. in his head. Anyway, I love that little dog. I just wanted to give her and, and Alex who bred her and a you know, what a good up. job he's done. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, hey, let's wrap it up. Yeah. Well, hopefully we answer the question. And um, Before we do wrap up, what I do want to say is you mentioned Mike Suttle before. It's just over a month until he's in our shores. That's Um, exciting. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of people who have spoken to me recently about scent detection and their nose works or their NDTF. I've mentioned it before on the show. If you are involved in any type of scent detection and you're looking to up your game, I can't put you past Mike Suttle. If you're not considering Mike to come and learn off him for his expertise in his scent work, uh, you got rocks in your head. It's as simple as that. Mike is one of the best out there. I'm sure anybody who's been to his seminar before would have to say that he's ahead of his game in scent work. Mm-hmm. Were you jealous that I was holding his pocket and you just wanted to? to yes, have I did. I had, to, I, had to, I had to best you. I had to finish on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. And- I, I 100% concur. Anybody that's involved in scent work from All those nice guys, to, very, very intellectual and, uh, yeah. yeah, just a, a great wealth of knowledge to be around. Yeah. But from nose works to bomb dogs and everything in between, you got to be there. Yep. All right. Hey, that's it for the second 
Skype episode of the Canine Paradigm. Hopefully, we'll be together this weekend and we'll be able to do a, a live episode. And maybe an interview. We'd, we'd never know. Hopefully. We'll see what happens. Yep. Don't Let's not jinx ourselves. So, if you feel like it, if you maybe you're a good guy or gal, just give us a like, rate, share, subscribe on whatever subscription service you download us from. We haven't had, we haven't been getting many of those. We feel like we've maxed out. I feel like we've hit our listenership and everyone's just like, oh. Well, we can't have because we've got like a hundred and something likes and shares and yet we've got like thousands of people on our <laughs> on our social media page. So really, what are the rest of you doing? Like there's 900 well, of the you that I haven't understand got- as well. How is it that we only have, I think, like 2,000 followers on, on the social media but like 4,000 downloads per episode? I don't, I don't understand how those numbers work out. Is that people who just – they don't have social media? What's going on there? I don't know. Maybe we've just got a lot of haters in the background. <laughs> I'm not sure. Just listening. Or well, they don't want it. They're like, I give you an hour a week to be in my That's ears. It. I don't want you on my screen, you yeah. fucks. Yep. Could be that. Could be. All right. Well, anyway, if you want to support the show, do that on Patreon. Uh, three bucks a month will get you some extra content. Ten bucks gets a live Q&A. And uh, what do we say? 500 bucks gets you a hug and a kiss and you get to choose who that's from. Yep. If you want to get in contact with us, do that uh, via email. We are info at the canineparadigm.com. And that is it. Glenn, music. <laughs>